Welcome to Hematologic Oncology Update. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. On this program, we visit two physician investigators and two nurse practitioner researchers who specialize in this complex but exciting area. And on this program, we focus on two of the most common and interesting pockets in the field, multiple myeloma and the B-cell cancers, chronic lymphocytic leukemia and non-Hodgkin lymphoma. These discussions, in some cases, cover similar ground, and we do this to provide more than one perspective on what are often complicated issues. To begin, Dr. Sagar Loneal presents a patient with multiple myeloma from his practice. This was a 63-year-old gentleman who is a pretty functional 63-year-old guy, still working as a financial advisor, and just noticed increasing fatigue over the past four to six months, and a little bit of weight loss, a little bit of diffuse bone pain, but, you know, he's a 63-year-old guy and just thought it was arthritis kind of pain. Went to his internist and was noted to have anemia, and when the internist worked up the anemia a little bit more aggressively, was noted to have an elevated total protein and was then referred to me for further evaluation of a high protein. So when we saw him, he was a pretty fit 63-year-old guy, you know, plays tennis or walks on the golf course about once or twice a week, is a pretty active guy, still very sharp, lives alone, has kids that live in the area. And we embarked upon a series of myeloma-specific labs, trying to understand what kind of a protein this was and how large the protein was. I guess the total protein is just a normal part of the screening Correct. chemistries that people get. Correct. And this alerted the doc in practice that there was something else. Did he think that the patient had myeloma? I think he was just with the anemia and the elevated protein and referred him to a hematologist. Okay. But there was this issue of routine chemistry showing not just anemia, but also increased protein. Correct. Now, where does the normal protein come from, you know, in a a person who's not ill? So a normal protein is usually a combination of albumin, which usually forms about half the total protein in the blood, and other proteins like gamma globulins that are normally produced by the bloodstream and the blood system. And so what would the normal range be for total protein? So the normal range for total protein is probably about six and a half to maybe eight and a half, somewhere in that ballpark there. And what was this man's total protein? This man's was ten and a half. So it wasn't like tremendously elevated, but but it was clearly elevated. Yes, that's correct. And so now once you see that as a sort of sign that needs to be followed up, what's the next step in sort of dissecting out what's going on? So when we see somebody with an elevated total protein, it can come from a lot of different causes, things such as an acute illness, uh, volume depletion or dehydration. Those can all cause an elevated total protein. What was in this patient that caused us to be a little bit more concerned was the association with anemia. And when you see anemia associated with a large total protein, that gives you a suspicion that there's another protein in the blood that shouldn't be there and, in fact, may be a myeloma protein. And so the next test after the total protein from a routine chemistry is to do a serum protein electrophoresis. And what they do in a serum protein electrophoresis is they take all the proteins in the blood and they spread it out on a gel. And on that gel, they can see, is there too much of any one kind of protein compared to the other proteins that are within the blood? And when they did this in this patient, they noticed that there was a large amount of an IgG kappa paraprotein. And that's often referred to as a spike, an M-spike. And where would this be coming from? Well, when you see a monoclonal spike in the blood that is a gamma globulin in origin, meaning it's an IgG or an IgA. And when you say monoclonal, you mean it's a very specific type of protein. Correct. 
in a normal serum protein electrophoresis in the gamma range, where the gamma globulins usually live, it's a nice broad hill. It looks like a hill you'd see in a Charlie Brown show or something. And the gamma globulins also, they function in terms of defense against infection? Correct. Absolutely. Gamma globulins are the antibodies that our body makes when challenged with an infection or a vaccine. For instance, when you get the pneumococcal vaccine or you give the pneumococcal vaccine, patients are supposed to make antibodies. Those antibodies are gamma globulins. Those go into the gamma globulin fraction. And so when you look at this under serum protein electrophoresis in the area where you see the gamma globulins, what you're saying is there should be a spectrum. It should be you know a bunch of different kinds of gamma globulins not just one really narrow, specific type that's very elevated. That's correct. And correct. he had one that was elevated. He had one that was very specific. It was narrow. And he had lost his normal gamma globulins at the same time. So that's part of the disease. You get too much of one, and you lose all the other ones. And why would that happen? Well, because the malignant cells, the plasma cells that make this gamma globulin that are cancerous suppress the normal plasma cells from doing what they're doing at the same time. And so part of the reason you get anemia is that you crowd out the normal bone marrow at the same time. So it's a suppression as well as overgrowth phenomena. So now once you saw that spike, were you able to say, well, this man has multiple myeloma or what's sort of the next step in figuring out what's going on? Well, the next step, I think, as you want to do with every new patient that you see is to make sure you have all the baseline data collected. And so in addition to the serum protein electrophoresis, which made me 95% confident that this patient had myeloma, you also want to collect the urine protein to find out how much protein is present in the urine. In patients that I look after, we also want to collect a new test called the free light. A free light is a more sensitive test for picking up a protein in the blood, and it can often be an early marker of response or progression. You also want to get x-rays to get a sense for whether the bones are involved and are the bones involved with holes in the bones, classic lytic bone disease, or are the bones just thin? osteopenic bones, which is actually the most common finding in patients with multiple myeloma. And can you talk a little bit more about really what's happening when people have multiple myeloma? And for example, how does that process lead to these bone changes? Yeah, so multiple myeloma is essentially overzealous plasma cells. And these overzealous plasma cells, all of one type, that's why we call them monoclonal, they essentially invade the marrow, they suppress normal bone marrow function, they suppress normal plasma cell function, and at the same time, they seem to activate the cells that destroy bone. Now, we all know that bone is constantly being turned over. You're making bone, you're tearing it down. You're making it, you're tearing it down. Bone is not a static organ. And what happens in myeloma is that you suppress the cells that make bone, and you activate the cells that destroy bone. And that results in thinning of the bone, that results in secretion of calcium into the blood, which then causes symptoms of high calcium, and at the same time it can put holes in the bone that are at risk for fracture. Now, where normally do plasma cells hang out, so to speak? Plasma cells are normal cells in the immune system, and they usually live in the bone marrow. And so, in a way, conceptually, how is this similar or different to, say, a leukemia? Well, leukemia cells tend, for the most part, to originate in the bone marrow, but then circulate in the blood. 
plasma cells, for the most part, except in a rare situation of plasma cell leukemia, actually need the bone marrow to survive. And it's a very interesting biologic differentiation that these malignant cancer cells really have to be in the bone marrow to do their worst because they need that support from the bone marrow, they need the growth factors, they need the environment to really be able to grow and do what they want to do. When a myeloma cell no longer needs that and can circulate freely in the blood, you're in big trouble because that cell now has figured out how to get everything it needs from the blood and doesn't necessarily need to live in the bone marrow where we have a better shot at controlling it. Now, how many cases of myeloma are diagnosed a year? What's the male-female ratio? What are some of the basic statistics there? So the epidemiology of multiple myeloma is that there are about 20,000 new cases diagnosed in the U.S. per year, and that's actually increased in the last 10 years. Probably about 10 years ago, we said there were about twelve to 14,000 cases diagnosed per year. And I don't think that's because the frequency is going up. I think it's that as the population is aging, we're starting to pick it up more frequently in routine health testing. And do you see more of this diagnosis as people get older? Yes. The average age of myeloma is 65. But if you look at the actual demographics, a third of patients with newly diagnosed myeloma are over the age of 75. Male to female is pretty similar, maybe a little bit of a male predominance. But interestingly enough, minorities, especially African-Americans, are almost two to one predisposed to get myeloma compared to non-African-Americans. And similar to prostate cancer, actually, where African-Americans are two to one as well. And the average age of an African-American with myeloma is often 10 years younger than the average age of a non-African-American who gets myeloma. So before we talk about the rest of the diagnostic workup and the treatment approach, just to focus a little bit back on the biology of this disease, when it becomes out of control and it progresses, how does it progress? What are the causes of death? What is the natural history of the disease if it's not controlled? Okay. So what malignant plasma cells do if left to their own devices is that they do continue to take over the bone marrow space and cause destruction of bones. And so oftentimes fractures will be evident. Those are often a presenting or a relapse presenting sign. Oftentimes patients will develop life-threatening cytopenias, thrombocytopenia with bleeding risk, anemia with, you know, cardiac events, leukopenia, and multiple infectious complications as well. In addition, because you're losing that normal gamma globulin fraction, patients are at much higher risk for developing infections from encapsulated organisms like pneumococcus, and haemophilus influenza. And actually, what often gets patients is either bleeding or infections, because these are the primary issues that result in significant morbidity and mortality. Let's get back to this patient. What was the rest of the workup that was done? So this gentleman had a bone marrow aspiratin biopsy that demonstrated about 50% plasma cells in the bone marrow. Uh, Routine cytogenetics analysis on that meaning looking at the chromosomes of those myeloma cells, was normal. And when you say 50% plasma cells, what would the normal fraction be? Less than 5%. And it wasn't just that they were increased in number. Their phenotype, the way they looked, was very different. They looked more aggressive. They had more nuclei. Several of them had two or three nuclei. So they were atypical, abnormal, aggressive-looking plasma cells. Now, this man, what did his bone series show? So his skeletal survey showed diffuse thinning of the bones. He had osteopenia, and he did have some lytic disease in the ribs. 
Were you the person who actually told him the formal diagnosis? Yes. And how did that conversation go? How did he respond to that? Did he have anybody with him? What happened? Well, his family was with him, his wife, and I think one of his children was with him. We told him specifically he had anemia and bone disease, which put him into the symptomatic myeloma category. And then we talk about treatment, and we try and get them around the concept that this is not a death sentence, but that this is a treatable condition. What was his emotional reaction to this news? Well, this was a pretty web-educated kind of person. So he'd been on and looked at a couple sites. He'd been to the IMF site, the MMRF site, and kind of had a handle on what was going on. I think he just had not been feeling well enough for the last few months that they expected something. And what has often struck me when you deliver these kinds of diagnoses is that sometimes patients are relieved because they just now have a reason for why they feel the way they do, and it's not all bad. He's a pretty even-headed guy, so I don't think he immediately thought the worst of the worst, but, you know, I think our approach when we see a patient like this where we're the ones that deliver the diagnosis, and fortunately, I think for a lot of our patients, they hear it somewhere else, and we get to come in and almost be the rescue guy to say, well, it's not as bad as you think it is. In this case, we did that in the beginning, and we said, look, you know, this is a disease where 10 years ago, your life expectancy was two years. Now it's eight to 10 years. And in addition to that, to the workup as you described or as, as we talked through, I also had his prognostic information. And so I was able to chart out what I expected the outcomes to be for him. And he was a gentleman with a low beta-2 microglobulin, a beta-2 of 2.5. And what is that? And a beta-2 microglobulin is a protein that's also secreted in the blood, and it has independent prognostic information in myeloma. Additionally, you cannot stage a patient anymore without a beta-2 microglobulin. It's probably one of the most important tests that we do. And looking at a low beta-2 that puts him in stage 1 disease by the ISS, the International Staging System, and patients with stage 1 disease have median survivals of between 6 and 10 years. So it's certainly very encouraging. And I'm just kind of thinking about some of the questions that somebody put in that situation. Obviously, they want to know about survival, and you mentioned, you know, that kind of information I would imagine another thing people might be asking is, you know, for whatever time that's going to be, what's it going to be like? Are you going to be able to manage the problems and complications? Have you discussed that with him? Yeah, I think that our goals of therapy are, and we talked about this in detail with him, are punctuated periods of treatment so that we try and come up with intense bursts of treatment for 6 to 12 months or 4 to 6 months and then try and taper down to less intensive therapy to allow him to maintain quality of life, presuming we can get disease control. And that continues to remain the overarching theme. You have to have disease control in order to do this. I'd like you to kind of talk about how you think about bone and about bisphosphonates and how that fits in. In a patient who's got clear-cut osteopenia and has lytic bone disease, there is in my mind no doubt that this is a patient that should have bisphosphonate therapy in an effort to reduce the risk of skeletal complications. Now, if it's not an emergency in the sense that he's not hypercalcemic, we don't see any major impending fractures, then I think that we like to get them seen and evaluated by their dentist before we give them the first dose of bisphosphonates. Because if you're going to have any dental work done, any major dental work done, you'd like to have that done before these drugs are on board because it can impair healing a little bit. And I guess you're also alluding to the issue of osteonecrosis of the jaw as a potential complication. And this ties in, of course, to the dentist. Can you explain a little bit about what that is and sort of how the dental work fits in? 
Yeah, osteonecrosis of the jaw is a complication of bisphosphonate therapy. It's being seen not just in myeloma now, it's being seen in prostate and breast as well as medicines like zolindronic acid and pomidronate are being used more frequently. And what essentially it is is that these drugs get concentrated in the bone and when you get an insult to the jaw or to the jaw bone itself that does not necessarily heal, these patients are at risk for developing significant bone infections. And these can be very, very morbid in terms of side effects and pain and bleeding and can often require aggressive intervention like surgical debridement or hyperbaric oxygen and all sorts of other things. Now, for example, did that come up as a topic when you spoke with him? And what would you say the risk is of something like that happening? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think that if you look at the large series of patients The risk, certainly in a myeloma patient, is a little higher than it is in a breast or a prostate cancer patient, but the absolute risk is probably around 3 to 4%. It's a pretty low risk overall. And there are some things you can do to try and minimize the risk, such as having patients tell you if they're going to go to the dentist to have major dental work done ahead of time. So that, for instance, in this case, we try and get it out of the way early. But even if they have to have dental work done, they can do it. You just want to try and discontinue the bisphosphonates for a period of time before and after the dental work. Ideally, you like two or three months of a break before and after, but I've had patients that have had no break at all and done well. The other thing that we found that increases the risk of ONJ is infections. And so you can have somebody who's on no bisphosphonates, but they get an infection in their jaw after the tooth is pulled and they get ONJ. So what we do is that patients that are on bisphosphonates, we put them on chronic antibiotics for about 28 days after their dental procedure, and we put them on Paradex mouth rinses twice a day to try and really keep that wound healed and to keep it clean and let it close. And once that wound closes, your risk of ONJ almost completely goes away. So let's talk about some of the options that you considered in managing his myeloma. So this was a patient that came to us, and when we started to talk about treatment, we talk about treatment in the context of clinical trials or treatment out of the context of clinical trials. And this was a patient that actually came to us when we still had the RVD trial going on. So our clinical trial context trial for him was RVD. And can you explain what that is? RVD is a three-drug combination using lenalidomide or Revlimid in combination with Velcade or Bortezomib and dexamethasone. So it's a triplet. Now, can you explain sort of what we know about the risks and benefits of all three of those drugs and this regimen? Well, it's a very early phase two trial. So in terms of all the potential benefits and risks, it's hard to really ascertain that. I can tell you that the data has been presented at a number of national meetings now, and the response rate is quite high, over 98%. The toxicity appears to be quite minimal and manageable for the three-drug combination, and that the benefit in terms of CR, complete remission, or very good partial remission is somewhere between 40 and 60%. So as a regimen, it's probably one of the most effective that we have. Now, can you dissect out a little bit more about each of the agents and sort of what the issues are clinically in terms of how they work and what their issues are? So let's start with DEX, which is probably the easiest. Corticosteroids probably have the longest history in myeloma. There is currently a big debate about dexamethasone versus prednisone or versus high-dose DEX versus low-dose DEX. And fortunately, we're in a situation where one does not necessarily need as much high-dose DEX 
because we have efficacy agents like Velcade and lenalidomide that we can use to try and pick up some of the slack and toxicity. But when the higher doses of dexamethasone have been used, what kinds of problems do patients get into? Yeah, so the problems that patients will often get in with high-dose dex is they get wired, essentially. That's the best way to describe it. They can't sleep. They can't rest. They're jittery. They're shaky. They'll often see problems with infectious complications because of that dose of dexamethasone. We'll see some GI toxicity occasionally, nausea, diarrhea. Again, infections and being wired is probably the most common syndrome Interestingly, in really older patients over the age of 75, you often see the exact opposite, where they just completely shut down and they lose weight and they can't eat, which the first few times I saw it really surprised me. But it is a not uncommon finding with high-dose decks in an elderly population. And I guess there was a study from the Eastern Cooperative Oncology Group that came out over the last year or two that randomized and actually showed that, I mean, I guess it's controversial, but in a lot of situations, you don't need to use high-dose dex. Absolutely. And I think that that data, in my mind, is most clear for the older patients. For the patients over 65, it was clear that there was no benefit at all to high-dose dex, clearly a survival benefit for the low-dose dex. In the younger patients, I think since it's often short duration, for the fit patient, there may be the role, but I think you're right, we're getting away from using it much more now. Now, the other two agents that were used in this particular man are really part of a whole exciting wave of the use of so-called novel biologics in the disease. Can you explain what the imids are, what revlimid and thalidomide is, and what bortezomib is? Okay. So the imids are a class of drugs that began with thalidomide. And it was actually first used in myeloma because of Dr. Judah Folkman from Harvard, who observed that drugs like thalidomide appear to impair angiogenesis, this sort of holy grail in all of oncology that Avastin has really managed to take a foothold in, this idea of blocking blood vessel formation. And what was shown with thalidomide is that not only does it inhibit blood vessel formation, it also seems to activate the immune system. Specifically, it appears to activate a subset of cells called T-cells and natural killer cells, or NK cells. And those are important at activating immune function, especially anti-tumor immune function. And so that was why this group of drugs was called the IMIDs, the immunomodulatory agents. Thalidomide was able to do this, but thalidomide has a lot of side effects. It has somnolence, it has neuropathy, it has significant constipation as a major effect. And so the second-generation drug, lenalidomide, which has much less neuropathy, much less uh, somnolence, much less constipation, was developed. And interestingly enough, lenalidomide is actually more potent than thalidomide. It actually appears to activate the immune system even more effectively than thalidomide does, to the point that we're now combining lenalidomide with monoclonal antibodies to try and make the antibodies better by revving up the immune system when we use it together. Any other issues about the IMIDs? What about clotting? So DVT or thrombosis is an issue with the IMIDs. It's an issue with thalidomide, and it continues to be an issue with lenalidomide. We now know that you can use low-dose prophylaxis with low-molecular weight heparin or occasionally aspirin, but I think in many ways the choice of prophylaxis depends on the number of risk factors that a patient has. So for instance, if a patient is immobile, that's one risk factor. If they're going to get high-dose dex, that's two risk factors. If they're going to get erythroid growth factors, that's a third risk factor. If they're going to get an anthracycline, like doxel or doxorubicin, 
That's a fourth risk factor. So you add up the number of risk factors, and for patients that have one risk factor or less, you can probably get away with an aspirin as prophylaxis. But if you have more than that, more intensive anticoagulation is probably needed. Now, the other part of this regimen is the V, or the Velcade or Bortezomib, a really interesting agent that's being looked at in a lot of situations. How does it work, and how does it play out in terms of risks of treatment? So bortezomib is a class of drugs called proteasome inhibitors. And just as we talked about imids a moment ago is a new class, the proteasome inhibitors are a new class of drugs as well, been around for a couple years now. And the proteasome in the cell, every cell has proteasomes. The proteasome is the garbage can for that cell. As you know, proteins within a given cell are not just thrown out, they're recycled. And the way those proteins are recycled in a given cell is that they are targeted to go to the proteasome. The proteasome then takes the protein and breaks it down into individual amino acids. And then those amino acids are reused by the cell. Now, a myeloma cell is a protein-producing factory. That's what it does. It makes gamma globulins. It makes antibody. Those are proteins. So in, in general, to start with, plasma cells are set up to be more sensitive to dysregulation or regulation of the protein garbage disposal, the proteasome. And that was where the whole concept of using bortezomib in myeloma first originated. Now, the uses of bortezomib have been identified in relapse disease. They've been identified in newly diagnosed disease with melphalan, with prednisone, with dexamethasone in combination with thalidomide. But I think it's important to just keep in mind what the most common side effects of bortezomib-based therapy are, and those are often fatigue and neuropathy. And the peripheral neuropathy associated with bortezomib is usually seen in the hands and in the feet, similar to thalidomide, but often may have a painful component to it, different from what you see with thalidomide. The good news for bortezomib-based neuropathy, though, is that if caught early, it's reversible. And so unlike what we see with thalidomide or vincristin or even cisplatinum, where once patients get neuropathy, it's there. With bortezomib, if you catch it early, you can allow it to reverse itself and repair. And how do you do that by stopping the drug? You stop the drug, you dose modify, you can use intensive vitamin supplements, B12, folate, over-the-counter remedies, Neurontin, medicines like Lyrica as well, Cymbalta can have some role. So many of the antidepressants can have a role as well in trying to manage this. Anything else about the quality of the neuropathy that's seen here? Yeah, I think what's really different about bortezomib neuropathy compared to thalidomide or other drugs is this painful component, this almost electric shock-like pain that patients feel. And that, to me, is a red flag. When a patient tells you, you know, I was pushing down on the gas pedal the other day and I felt this shooting in my leg, that to me means they need a drug holiday and they need dose modification. So for this man, you actually proposed that he participate in a clinical trial that was evaluating this new strategy. What were the other options that you considered? So in the absence of a clinical trial, the options that we will often give patients is either another triplet, VTD, bortezomib with thalidomide and dexamethasone, or bortezomib dexamethasone, or lenalidomide and dexamethasone. That's sort of the menu as I see it for a patient at our center that comes in with newly diagnosed myeloma. And we tend to try and encourage patients to go on the three-drug therapy, whether it's on or off a clinical trial. So how did he do on the treatment? 
So he received RVD on trial, and after one cycle of therapy, he had already achieved a 70% reduction in his protein. After three cycles of therapy, had achieved essentially a near-complete remission, but started to develop a little bit of peripheral neuropathy. And so he was having a little bit of difficulty with balance from time to time, so we gave him a two-week break and did not start the fourth cycle on schedule, and then reduced the second cycle, the bortezomib, to one milligram per meter squared instead of 1.3. In that two-week interval, he had almost resolution of his symptoms back down to baseline, and so we continued him for an additional cycle to complete four cycles of induction with RVD. Now, did he have concerns that by reducing the dose of bortezomib, it might compromise the treatment of the myeloma? Yeah, that is certainly a concern. I think, again, this is the advantage of a triple drug regimen. You're not depending on one horse to get all the work done. You've got two other drugs that are in there. But there also is significant efficacy data with one milligram per meter squared when it's been reduced to one after toxicity at 1.3. So I think that there are theoretical concerns, but practically and clinically speaking, reducing to one from 1.3 is not a reason to say the drug's not going to work. And where is this man right now? So after four cycles of therapy, he'd achieved, as I said, a near-complete remission. We mobilized his stem cells and collected them, but because he'd had such a great response to therapy, we elected to keep him on protocol, and he's now in cycle seven of RVD, is maintaining the bortezomib at one milligram per meter squared, full-dose lenalidomide and dexamethasone, and is tolerating therapy well. Now, in the past, high-dose therapy with stem cell rescue has been part of the approach to younger patients. Is that something you mentioned that his stem cells are being collected? Two, three years ago, would he have just gone to a transplant? Is this concept of sort of holding off for a while, is that sort of new? It is, it is. And I think it's still a controversial stand, so I don't want people to walk away thinking that that's the standard approach. I think that proceeding to early high-dose therapy and autologous transplant continues to remain a standard approach for patients who are young and fit with newly diagnosed myeloma. Our approach here and our thoughts here are that there is a randomized trial from the Spanish group showing no difference between early and late transplant, meaning first remission, which is where this patient is now, and first relapse, meaning at the first sign the disease starts to get active again. And if we've already collected and mobilized stem cells, we're ready to go if we need to at any point down the road. Now, I imagine this man must have asked you, what's the chance that I'm just going to stay in remission and never have another problem? I think that realistically speaking, the likelihood is pretty low. What we would hope, though, is that he can get a two- or three-year duration of remission with maintenance lenalidomide after completing RVD, and then at the first sign of relapse, we would transplant him and get him another two to two-and-a-half years, which is the average duration of remission for a patient with ISS stage 1 disease. Now, are there any other drugs or agents that are being looked at in a research setting kind of in this upfront before transplant? We've talked about the imids and bortezomib, dexamethasone, any other agents that are being studied? Yeah, I think that there are combinations of drugs now looking at alkylators or anthracyclines, and that's probably the other class of drugs that is being looked at in a larger format now, and that includes cyclophosphamide, which is probably the most commonly being used agent. The group at Mayo Scottsdale has a combination of bortezomib with cyclophosphamide and DEX called Cybor-D. There's also combinations of an anthracycline 
like doxorubicin or doxel that is being looked at in combination with bortezomib as well as with lenalidomide in the context of newly diagnosed disease. And do we have any information from any of these strategies at this point and these other strategies? Well, there's been some data presented at ASH that certainly looks very, very encouraging. The combination of cyclophosphamide with bortezomib and dexamethasone has a response rate of over 80% with about a third to a half of patients achieving complete remissions or near-complete remissions. The addition of an anthracycline like doxel to bortezomib also has very high overall response rates with complete remissions or near-complete remissions of 30 to 40%, and the same can be said for combinations of cyclo or doxel with lenalidomide. Liposomal doxorubicin seems to be actually a relatively easy partner in many of these because the degree of myelosuppression is not overwhelming like it is with cyclophosphamide given on a weekly schedule. Hand-foot does not appear to be a major problem so far that we can see with this regimen. What is interesting, again, in combination with the IMIDs is the risk of thrombosis because the risk of thrombosis with an anthracycline and an IMID is higher, but so far we've not seen a really, really high rate. I'd like to spend the rest of the time just briefly talking about the way oncologists think through choices of therapy as patients sort of progress down the line. Yeah. You mentioned that, you know, I guess if the patients are under, I don't know, 65, 70, that stem cell transplant with high-dose chemo is going to be out on the menu, probably not for older or sicker patients. Is that right? Correct. What about once you get beyond that, if the disease is progressing, what are some of the strategies that you use there? Yeah, this is really the million-dollar question. What do you do with a patient that's relapsed? And I think that there are a number of features that go into making that decision. Fortunately, we have a menu. We have a lot of different things we can choose from. And in order to try and differentiate choices within that menu, I think you need to look at, A, what has the patient already received? B, how did the patient tolerate that treatment? Were there drug-specific side effects that make you think, there's no way I'm going there again. C, what kind of morbidity does the patient have now? And D, how long was it between what they received and where you are now? And for instance, if a patient is over six months out from having received either bortezomib or lenalidomide, stopped and then stayed in remission and then relapsed, then you feel more comfortable potentially revisiting that drug. If, on the other hand, they relapsed within a couple months of stopping the drug, then you probably are not going to be as comfortable revisiting that same drug again in a repeated fashion. So what are some of the drugs and regimens that are used as you move down the line? So I think that probably some of the most common agents or combinations to use in the relapse setting continue to be those which got us FDA approval. That would be bortezomib, bortezomib with doxel, bortezomib with dexamethasone, lenalidomide with dexamethasone. Those are probably the ones with the most amount of data available to look at in the relapse setting. Now, there are actually some very interesting and encouraging additional trials that have been presented that are larger now, like bortezomib with cyclophosphamide and prednisone. And that was a combination published by Donna Reese and the Canadian group that showed very, very nice efficacy and actually used weekly bortezomib. So the neuropathy was much less in that combination, and it appeared to be a very, very active regimen with almost, I think, 20% of patients achieving a complete remission. So I think you look at these kinds of combinations, you mix and match together, 
based on data and think about, you know, if a patient is clearly Velcade resistant or bortezomib resistant, you're going to go with an IMID-based combination or an IMID-based approach. If a patient's IMID resistant, you're going to go with a bortezomib-based approach. If neuropathy was a major problem, then you're probably going to try and use lenalidomide as part of your salvage therapy. I think these are all the tools that you use to make that decision. And again, beyond that? Beyond that, then it comes down to patient convenience Do they want to come, you know, if the patient lives two and a half hours away, they don't want to come into the office twice a week, then you're probably going to go with an oral therapy-based approach, whether it's LEN with cyclophosphamide, LEN with DEX, or something along those lines. I think those all start to play into roles as well. I think that the real issue here now as we start getting more and more efficacy is focusing on quality of life and symptom management. And that is really something that physicians just don't do very well. I'll admit that. I don't do that very well. I depend really heavily on my care team, my nursing team, to identify early peripheral neuropathy, to identify early toxicity of treatments, and to help me to decide, are we going to dose modify? Are we going to give patients a break? I think the concept that oncologists have of carbotaxol pushed to death or pushed to progression, it doesn't matter about side effects, those days are gone. We really need to pay attention to side effects and management to really minimize toxicity and maximize quality of life.